Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. So my name is Pavel Havlíček and I am a research fellow at the Association for International Affairs and I highly recommend the Visegrad Inside podcast. My name is Marek Bichin. I work at the Office of the Government of the Czech Republic and I highly recommend this episode of Visegrad Inside podcast and I perhaps even more recommend um, enlargement of the European Union. Hi, welcome to Visegrad Insights podcast. Uh, I'm Galen Dahl, managing editor, and I'm here with the Alvin Sabira, our foresight editor, and we're going to be discussing the events of the week. Well, the the major story um, is unavoidably the NATO summit in Vilnius, which will be occurring on the 11th and 12th of July. That's Tuesday and Wednesday. As we've just kind of reported, the 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 major you know uh, development is that most likely a pathway for membership for Ukraine will be existing, as well as um, an Israeli-style uh, security guarantee. Uh, Albin, how do you feel about this? Do you think this is going to be a realistic way forward for Ukraine? Hi, Galen. No, thank you for having me. I think well, when we look at the developments from the recent days, in which I would point, point out the tour of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky just had across the regional capitals, I think the message is, uh, is quite clear. Uh, in all the capitals, I've already speak of, uh, of Prague, Bratislava, um, also um, the signs of, uh, of support for, for Ukraine from, from, from Turkey, and um, um, obviously not, not, to, not to mention Poland, uh, we, we are sort of having a picture emerging in front of us of, uh, of uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, pathway to, to membership, which was later confirmed by NATO's General Secretary Jens Stoltenberg. So, so I think this is this is this is what, what's to be expected, and I, and I would actually in in my in my assessment, I would I would dwell a little bit on on this uh, trip that um, Volodymyr Zelensky undertook in the uh, in the region as and a precursor to the summit. Exactly, exactly, and I would point out how in the capitals of Central Europe, uh, Prague and Bratislava, he was uh, quite attuned to uh, domestic politics. He he warned against uh, the danger of Russian disinformation and Russian propaganda in uh, in Prague, and uh, later in Bratislava, he reiterated this message by saying that he he does not understand how how anyone can have uh, pro-Russian views. Uh, today, in in uh, in the age when we have access to information, which was a clear allusion to the upcoming uh, early elections in Slovakia, which um, uh, are uh, poised to be won by the pro Kremlin uh, former strongman of Slovakia, Robert Fico. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up the dis- uh, disinformation narratives because uh, one of the things we warned of this week is that there are several anniversaries. Um, uh, that are at play. Uh, both today and tomorrow, we have uh, the Volman massacre. Um, we have the the, the pogroms, um, as well as uh, Srebrenica, of course, uh, which is also headed tomorrow. And it's just one of the things to warn that this could be used by Russian disinformation channels uh, exactly for their their narratives. Yes, and it seems that Volodymyr Zelensky is quite aware of this when he commemorated the Volman massacre mm-hmm. together with Andrzej Duda. Which uh, uh, it seems to me that uh, Ukraine is, I would almost say, uh, is becoming a regional leader in, in combating mm. uh, Russian propaganda, and quite understandably so. I mean, who else besides uh, Ukraine amassed, uh, and not just in the, in the, in the uh, years of the Russian full-scale invasion, but in the years running up to it, 
uh, vast experience in, in, in countering uh, Russian disinformation. So in, in this perspective, I would even, uh, again, uh, recall the situation in Slovakia, which is especially, or where the local politics uh, is, is uh, especially under the grip of, uh, of populists and, and extremists. And as we saw just a few, few weeks ago, actually the, the Slovak leader, Zuzana Čaputová, who had been praised internationally um, during, mm-hmm. her, during mm-hmm. her uh, term as a, as a Slovak president, decided not to run again. And what she described as um, not having the energy for another term, but what local analysts uh, widely interpret as her um, exhaustion from uh, relentless attacks from from uh, uh, pro-Russian uh, local political forces. Oh wow! And that, that, that is actually really uh, excellent way to frame it. Now, getting back to the summit just briefly. Um, so obviously, we've talked about the pathway of membership. That's a big one. Um, but there's also this idea of the Israeli-style security, you know, guarantees. Um, this happens, of course, just the week after, or this is being reported the week after the U.S. has now announced that finally, after months of being asked from Kiev, that they will supply the controversial cluster bombs. Um, and I, I feel like there's a direct tie, of course, to do this. But I'm wondering, in the region, how is this being viewed? Do you think that this is going to be a strong enough uh, sign of support for Ukraine? I think on one hand, it is. On the other hand, uh, I mean, we, we, we also saw... Uh, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who has yeah. been who has been a Prime Minister of the of the, probably the the, the the largest second provider of uh, military support to Ukraine, who said that UK will not uh, support exactly. the, the, the the cluster bombs, and um, and I'm and I'm a little bit worried that uh, in a region which has been ripped by uh, uh, narrative battles and and uh, disinformation style um, uh, propaganda, this can be actually also used against. Uh, uh, Ukraine in the information space, and I think we have seen a little bit of this already when uh, when when we when we are reading messages from from the um, uh, Russian authorities uh, pointing twi- sort of flipping the table in this narrative game and pointing the finger at, at the at the at the US as allegedly um, uh, promoting uh, war crimes. And, right. And and so so. So I think this this coin has two sides, unfortunately. Well, do, do we think that, uh, how, okay, so, I mean, I agree with you, and we should also mention that, I mean, Russia has been using cluster bombs. Of course. And, of course. and, and this hasn't been, uh, well, I mean, of course, all war atrocities have been condemned by, you know, various peoples, but this one hasn't been specifically highlighted. It's when the ammunitions have been given to Ukraine. But uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, National Security Advisor, did uh, mention uh, that, one of the reasons for using the cluster bombs, of course, or, or for um, not using, but for uh, the U.S. offering them to Ukraine is because of the short supply of ammunitions. And, and, and in the ramp up uh, to production, they'll, you know, in the meantime, be offering some of the, the cluster bombs. But I, OK, so my, I guess my, my wonder is, do you think there's going to be hesitancy from some EU and NATO members, not just for the cluster bombs, but let's say, but even just the ramping up of uh should we say the heightened, the, the porcupine that can defend itself? That's like the analogy that's sometimes used for an Israeli style uh, uh, security. Do you think this is going to be something that will be more unified by NATO or will this be a little bit more split? I mean, we've seen uh, Russia prior to the full scale invasion. Uh, I would even uh, say uh, having the upper hand in the information battle. And it was really the, the full scale invasion of Ukraine which has sort of unmasked uh, Russia, even for those countries or for, for, for those politicians and for those populations that have for many long, too long years 
been reluctant to to uh, take take an open stance against Moscow, and uh, and uh, and uh, I'm I'm afraid that when we're seeing um, Vladimir Putin under pressure, uh, like we're seeing today, especially after uh, Evgeny Prigozhin's uh, mutiny or or what yes. appeared what appeared like a mutiny, uh, he might, along with other forces in Moscow, as uh, um, our colleague. Um, uh, uh, Vitaly has reminded us in his recent article, uh, mm-hmm. might be under pressure, uh, the, the Moscow circles might be under pressure to sort of uh, revamp their strategies, which were successful bef- prior to the full-scale invasion. And of course, one of them was besides the, the, um, the, uh, the information uh, warfare, were also uh, various appeals to, to various um, uh, political um, strands in, across Europe, both on the, on, on the left and on the right, and um, uh, obviously, the sort of a peace narrative that uh, uh, we've seen in, in a couple of months was was a particularly strong one. And we can also see that in in the in that this peace narrative has clearly been inspired by um, 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 peace protests in the United States in, in, in the seventies. Mm-hmm. They, they sort of uh, drew on the on the protests, like the peace protests against the Vietnam War. And uh, and they've revamped some of these narrative strategies. So so I'm I'm guessing we might see some of this, and and um, and uh, this actually should make us uh, think about how we want to address this and how we want to make uh, our societies uh, more resilient in terms of information, but also in terms of social cohesion. Which again, I would point out, this was um, uh, uh, an, an interesting timing of uh, Volodymyr Zelensky coming to Prague. Which mm-hmm. uh, w- he came just at a time when the the uh, uh, state aid measures for Ukrainians seeking shelter in Czechia were curtailed, cur- curtailed to to a large extent, and and the Czech NGOs are, are warning that Ukrainians in Czechia will be will be more exposed to to poverty, which may in the short term or long term. Uh, but definitely also uh, in both ways, it can it can lead to uh, uh, social unrest in the country in the, in the, in, the, in by having uh, such a large community uh, living under the uh, poverty threshold. Absolutely, absolutely, and I mean the the idea of kind of migration refugees is obviously a huge one in Poland, and as you mentioned, like the the elections that are coming up in Slovakia, well, they're also coming up in Poland, and they're expected to be in middle of October. Um, but what's interesting about that is for that to be so, the president, Andrew Duda, uh, would have to call uh, such the elections in the coming week or two. Um, what's interesting about this is that at the same time in Poland, we're seeing this bill being passed or uh, supposedly being passed soon by the same, which is going to uh, change the electoral law where instead of just having general elections, you can also hold a referendum on the same day. We've seen this technique used uh, in Fidesz in Hungary to bolster their numbers um, when their support might have been diminishing for various reasons, which, of course, is what's happening in Poland as well. And it would be fascinating to see if this actually plays out. It, it's not going to be 100 percent. I mean, although, uh, I, although I don't think a, a veto would be likely from the president, um, but the, the timing, they have, a, they have a short window that they would have to kind of push this through. It would require probably a, a special session of the same, but I don't think the government would be against doing that in any case. Well, uh, there's one more uh, issue I definitely want to kind of just touch base on if we have time, and it's the um, uh, what's been going on in the Western Balkans. Um, I know that you paid close attention to this specifically with uh, Serbia and, um, and Bosnia and Herzegovina. Can you tell us what's going on there at the moment? Well, I suppose uh, the two main uh, stories, as, as um, our readers may know or be aware of, 
are uh, the, the continued tensions in, in uh, northern Kosovo. And uh, we have just uh, 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 in the Serbian media could, could uh, watch uh, Serbian President Aleksandr Vucic, who actually said that uh, Serbia um, might impose a ban on, um, on export of weapons. And now, there are two aspects that are worth noting, uh, no, noteworthy in, in, in this regard. One is that uh, he's, he framed it in, in the largest situation in, in Serbia, and, uh, which is gripped by protests against, uh, against violence. I would specifically point out also by protest against violence in the media, so which also you know, is, is, is one theme I think that, that we should have been paying some attention to. And, uh, but uh, there's, this, there's this other aspect to it, which may actually be equally important and that is, we have also been witnessing uh, reports of um, of uh, Serbian uh, manufactured weapons in in Ukraine. Right, and it, and it may be that uh, Vucic might have just used the situation. He's very skillful at that uh, to simply put a ban for that reason. So, so, so there are no weapons, uh, Serbian made weapons um, in in Ukraine, which sort of may indicate something against uh, towards his um, uh, maintaining relationship with Moscow. And at the same time, we're seeing his, his uh, the, another Moscow ally in the region, uh, the head of the Republika Srpska entity in, in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, who in a milestone move defied the authority of um, high, high Commissioner and, and uh, he signed in uh, yeah. dec de decrees against it uh, on the territory of Republika Srpska, which is, uh, which is one of the, uh, probably uh, the, the, the biggest secessionist move we've seen today. Thanks very much, Alvin. Now we're going to be turning over to uh, Editor-in-Chief Wojciech Przybylski, uh, Vishkin Insight Fellow Jan Forfell, and our Vice President Magdalena, or Magda as we like to call her, Jakubowska, as they discuss with our guests Pavel Helicek and Marek Pichan uh, the future of EU enlargement as they travel in a car through Germany. Enjoy the listen. So welcome to the Visegrad Insight podcast. It's the 10th of July, 2023, and we're in a car uh, to Flensburg, uh, where we run a foresight retreat. Um, for one week, we're going to meet with experts, fellows, politicians to discuss the future of EU enlargement and EU neighborhood. My name is Wojciech Przybylski. Together with me, there is Jan Farfo, but also Magda Jakubowska. Uh, Pavel Havlicek and Marek Bichan, and off we go. Jan, why don't you introduce us to the subject? Yeah, while you navigate safely, it's a summer edition with uh, navigating. So, uh, the Flensburg timing is pretty crucial because European Union is entering a very critical phase in enlargement proceedings and we come from a position believing that enlargement is of a fundamental importance for the entire continent but there are a lot of potential pitfalls and threats that enlargement might take and in order to avoid those shortcomings and potential dangers together with Zeitstiftung we decided to run a strategic forecast mapping out potential threats, dangers, but also opportunities that this potential enlargement will have 
for the entire union. And uh, we are working currently on four scenarios that we aim to equip the policymakers within member states, within Brussels circles, but also for candidate states, so they would be more aware about the potential trajectories that uh, Ukraine's, Moldova's, or in this matter, Western Balkan accession can have. Thanks, Jan. That's, uh, that provides the context of, of our trip and a special uh, format in which we're discussing the subject uh, this week. Um, I would add just two points, uh, essentially why we're in Germany and what it is, why it is so important to involve partners from both the neighborhood, the, the Eastern Partnership, Western Balkans, Southern neighborhood, many experts and scholars, um, also transatlantic ones, but specifically why to engage German um, uh, uh, foundation and ger German partners in the process. And I think the, the reason is quite obvious. There is no enlargement, there is no change in European politics unless we actually gain some ground and influence in um, in, the, in streaming uh, also the policies of, of this very important European country. And German policies on enlargement and neighborhood um, have been playing an important part in the, in the past. However, there was no um, push for enlargement from Germany. There was even a sort of um, reluctance, you would say, from the German elites in the, in the past about a potential next enlargement after the Big Bang, after later individual countries were slowly joining and the enlargement has been stalling even, uh, Germany was prioritizing, as we heard in the speech of Chancellor Scholz, uh, the institutional reform of EU and without it, and specifically without modifying the uh, voting behavior, the, the, uh, the qualified majority vo voting to be introduced in the Foreign Affairs Council, um, the, the Chancellor said the enlargement essentially would be only the second step. So in a way he said there would be a certain condition from uh, the position of, of German elites. And my second point um, following on that is that if you look at where Europe has mattered in the past, it was largely and primarily through enlargement. Enlargement has been shaping the direction of European Union in the past, mostly and very often so, accidentally, it, it gave EU a dynamics. There is a whole theory that said that the enlargements and the dealing with the new member states was never properly and well planned. And I think we agree uh, with it in, in our analysis, but this is also what we try to change, to talk about the options that are on the table, both for the countries that maybe the new member states or are on the path towards this, this goal, and the countries which are in the neighborhood, uh, closer and further neighborhood of EU, and what all these process and dynamics mean. And I think, uh, in all honesty, this discussion has been largely missing. I mean, we, we are very reactive now to the war in Ukraine, although there were some warnings before we were not really discussing what if another war on the European continent happens and what are the roles and responsibilities. So now we're dealing with the problem, we are reacting, and I think admirably, and of course we could have done it better, but if the EU enlargement is the key European policy, European Union policy, and has been for many years, 
then definitely one one thing we could say is that it hasn't been yet properly prepared and the strategic foresight that we're providing hasn't been really there. Uh, so these options have not been really properly discussed and therefore um, the way how to go about it might, might be suboptimal. What do you think, guys? Exactly. The situation is very dynamic and while speaking about Germany, uh, you correctly pointed out that initially uh, Germany was rather reluctant with, with another enlargement way, but then Zeitenwende happened. And shortly before February last year, when the full-scale aggression happened, Chancellor Scholz was saying that no enlargement is visible in any foreseeable future whatsoever. A few weeks later on, we see a major change. And part of our activities is to see that this enlargement considerations will have uh, better ramifications. So uh, we would have a trajectory that could steer us in a better place rather than you know navigating through these uncharted waters. And perhaps it might be interesting to, to, to shed light on one or two ideas that we are currently working on. So uh, Currently, there is a new narrative gaining momentum among policymaker circles, which entails uh, staged uh, enlargement, so differentiated enlargement. Perhaps, Wojciech, you would, you would shed light to, to, to our listeners about it. So, uh, but, or, or maybe you will just uh, relate to this in, in further point. But essentially, the idea is that for the past 20 years, little to no progress has been made with relation to Western Balkans. And we entered this purgatory stage where the European Union is pretending to take in the candidate states from the Balkans, whereas the Balkan states are pretending to introduce very difficult and, uh, and complex reforms that would make it happen. And uh, in order to overcome this, uh, this stalemate, uh, some analysts came up with an idea of stage accession, meaning that uh, let's introduce some difficult reforms now, let's rip off immediate benefits with some partial accession, and only in stages we will be moving those countries closer to the union itself. And I mean, in principle, the idea is very interesting because it's another attempt to move things forward. However, if we think from a slightly broader perspective, what this would entail is introducing difficult reforms for access to Schengen, access to some plenary sessions, but without any direct involvement in the strategic decisions taken within the Union. How far is that? So uh, essentially it's postponing the problem that we are currently facing later in the future that might explode afterwards. So uh, there is this dangerous drift with, with this idea and we are currently mapping out what kind of further consequences should we think about with, with stage accession. But uh, perhaps you would like to jump in, Pavel? Yes, actually just to build on what you mentioned, Jan, um, the idea of the stage accession is not entirely new. Uh, the colleagues from Center for European Policy Studies, CEPS, Brussels-based think tank, already came up with this a couple of years ago, but it didn't really have the political momentum and it wasn't really supported by the member states for 
quite a few 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 months or years even um, and now I just wanted to add that the political dynamics is changing quite rapidly and uh, just to give you a couple of examples and I will go back to last year and the Czech EU presidency uh, during which actually a number of important steps actually took took place for many surprisingly uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina was given a candidate status country that was given a number of, con of conditions you know country that is not in a very good uh, state if to put it very mildly was given this new perspective you know a number of other countries including obviously and most visibly uh, Ukraine and Moldova were given candidate status and this is something that really gives a new momentum to the whole enlargement process this is the Russian aggression against Ukraine and the, the neighborhood and including the, the West as well so this is something that really gives a new opportunity for the Western Balkans I would dare to say and really uh, is, is offering a new new uh, sort of venues uh, we spoke a lot about Germany but uh, we should not forget about uh, who played a very important role until recently and this was the Swedish EU presidency uh, which for the first time ever actually organized at the very end of its term uh, a discussion high-level discussion among the member states how to do things within enlargement what it would mean to get new members you know how they would be or not to be as you Jan mentioned very rightly uh, the voting procedure for example how they would be represented you know what for example the stage accession would actually mean so this is something that really is getting a new traction there is a new political momentum and all ideas that were just recirculated and maybe um, uh, re, re, uh, uh, redistributed among the member states is getting new traction I would dare to say surely Bosnia is a good example that is often brought uh, now towards the table as showing that it received a candidate status not for any reforms that it introduced nor for its the democratic performance but rather as a balancing act between West and East. And this brings us to, to, to another discussion of norms and narratives. So there are circles warning us that we should not uh, downgrade our standards while bringing in candidate uh, states and surely we we should strive for upholding those high standards but at the same time focusing the entire discussion on values is neglecting a vast amount of strategic considerations which were always present in enlargement discussions. This was the case in 2004, this was also the case in the 90s, even with German unification and with the Maastricht Treaty. So this uneasy balance between norms but also interests should, should stay in us. But uh, you, Pavel, mentioned an, an important aspect, so perhaps we could, we could discuss it a bit further, that usually uh, while talking about enlargement, we think only about the potential benefits for the candidate states but clearly this is a dynamic process in which the union itself is benefiting a lot so perhaps we could spend some time uh, talking about it so Marek maybe some reflections from from the presidency indeed I would like to build on the points raised by Pavel and Ivan Jan uh, speaking of the role of presidencies uh, it's actually quite 
bad from the perspective of enlargement that we just had the very active Czech presidency, very active Swedish presidency. Um, during our Czech presidency, we were even exploring some possibilities what to offer to, uh, in, a, in a package of these like staged enlargement. We were looking into maybe introducing roaming uh, in in Western Balkan countries, which obviously is not one of the one of the huge problems that they are currently facing. Like we were kind of giving them giving them this option as a gesture, but then there's there's this geopolitical alternative of uh, Russian very very active Russian and even Chinese involvement in the region. So European Union became uh, the not not the strongest player in in, in that field. Furthermore. Um, Enlargement is not a huge priority of Spanish presidency. If uh, any enlargement is mentioned or any collaboration, it's usually mentioned in terms of southern enlargement rather than eastern enlargement. Uh, after that, we have Belgian presidency. Uh, sorry, that, Marek, uh, is it southern enlargement or southern neighborhood? Uh, southern, southern neighborhood, like yeah. close cooperation with with MENA countries basically so so it won't be a huge priority for, for the for the Spanish but then for the Belgians I don't think that it will be a huge priority either than the Hungarians and this brings me to the topic of uh, Germany and uh, the every successful enlargement or mostly the, the, the big eastern enlargement of 2004 the, it was mostly supported by the British and if you need successful enlargement wave, not individual countries like Croatia, for example, but but broader, bigger wave, you need to have a, a powerful sponsor, and this sponsor uh, has to be either France or Germany. While France doesn't seem to be interested that much in eastern neighborhood, neighborhood Germany, out of like, historical experience and and uh, the broader knowledge uh, of the region, might be one. But given uh, the behavior of governments in Hungary and in Poland, they are uh, especially German Social Democrats and the German left, these politicians, who think that uh, the Eastern enlargement of 2004 wasn't necessarily successful. And uh, our experience from the presidency is that to the Germans, uh, any possible enlargement and German support for it will need to be uh, will need to go hand in hand with uh, institutional reform of the EU, which then is a huge problem or would be a um, problem for the Eastern countries like Poland, Hungary, even Czech Republic. Not even uh, sorry that I step in here, but not even the Eastern flank, uh, NATO Eastern flank countries. But the initiative of a non-paper was uh, from Copenhagen, so it was the yes, Danes, Danes and Nordics who did not want necessarily um, the talk about reforming the EU mm. while we have a war in Ukraine. But of course that was some time ago. So it was at the conclusions of the uh, Conference on the Future of Europe, yes. May, June last year. Um, do you think it's, this position has changed from from the Nordic countries? I yeah. don't think it's really changed, but I, I, the any enlargement is really connected to the topic of qualified majority voting in the council. And then the, the, the problem is that the countries who would normally support enlargement uh, do not support the change of qualified majority voting in the council. And actually Spain, uh, it's one of the priorities, uh, one of the priority of the Spanish presidency is to review the process of uh, qualified majority voting. So I do think that it's a deadlock 
but then I strongly agree with Jan uh, that by looking at enlargement only in terms of what would be the problem, we are losing the, the, the broader strategic perspective and then we might end it up with a situation that the Western Balkan countries would be mostly uh, in the pocket of China and being influenced by Russia because we are not in a position to offer them anything specific. Okay. Absolutely. This is on one hand the compromise on the values uh, because we still need to stick to the values and I, I strongly believe that you know no compromises sh uh, should be made in here. At least there should be uh, considered whether the fast track uh, enlargement uh, won't bring more problems than uh, than uh, than not. On the other hand, uh, we need that enlargement, otherwise, or those enlargements. Um, otherwise, we will have a rising, growing problems at the borders of the EU. Uh, China, on one hand, also the rise of, uh, of uh, pro-Russian uh, movements in those countries. So, in that sense, absolutely, this is uh, this is important to to go that way. I fu fully agree there, Magda. And um, one th one thing in connection to what Jan said and what you said about interests and values that I would like to stress and underline that uh, that is still a bit of a semantic but also strategic problem for Europe that both are being disconnected while they shouldn't we should think and consider values as part of our interest uh, Europe uh, altogether exists as a community building values and without the value-driven core of the integration it uh, fails to deliver all the interests including security and peace to the member states and to the neighborhood. Similarly, when looking at the enlargement and the, and the neighborhood countries' stability and prosperity of those countries, this is not just the core value or in the core values of sharing, solidarity approach and increasing freedom, but it is also in, in the best interest for EU to think and to plan as quickly as possible enlargement. The world is not waiting for us in terms of European Union and Europe overall. And the continent is energy poor. It needs the resources that the countries nearby have. Uh, just to illustrate that we're now in Germany. Only 2%, less than 2% of Germany is uh, covered by water resource. A resource that is becoming scarce and, and more scarce uh, around the world. Ukraine is 4% of the territory covered with water. You have energy power, again, from Ukraine, but similarly, there are these resources that are rare materials and minerals needed for the energy transformation in the Western Balkans. In Serbia, we're having lithium, and lithium mines have been often the source of political conflict, even to a certain ex extent political instability. Um, but you can imagine how better organized that would be and more accessible to the EU um, uh, single market if, if this was indeed part of a single market with a political decision-making at, at the table. So I, I think that, that just, you know, these are examples and we definitely will explore them more um, when, when talking with, uh, with the expert uh, circles at strategic foresight sessions that we're planning. 
but now we need to slowly uh, maybe uh, maybe as a final drop, thought yeah. then it, I think it would be worth mentioning it again to our listeners that uh, no enlargement doesn't mean a status quo things won't stay the same as they are if no enlargement will continue. What we will observe will be a continuous degradation of democratic standards and security risks. Also, climate uh, climate standards would be considerably downgraded as well. And uh, if we look back at the story with Romania and Bulgaria, this is uh, those two countries are an interesting examples where some kind of lenient accession has been implemented. And obviously, there is a lot to be done in those two countries, and part of the criticism is well justified. However, if they would have been subjected to the same treatment as Western Balkans after 2022, just imagine how much difficult would it be in the entire region with pro-Russian Bulgaria outside of the EU frontiers, how much violence the, the entire region would be. And I think that this is an important lesson that we should keep in mind. There is, There are things to be done, but things are much safer when they are dealt within the union itself rather than outside. All right. So, guys, uh, greetings from the road to Flensburg, uh, the European Academy in Schleswig-Holstein, when... Uh, where we're gonna sit down and uh, work on scenarios and recommendations and then uh, stay tuned for more updates from that process which will be happening uh, in autumn uh, this year. So far, uh, enjoy the summer vibes. Thanks. Auf Wiederhören. <laughs> Thank you. Au revoir.